0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hi. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on today's episode, we're going to talk about the differences of communicating thinking in the political environment as an elected official versus a when you're a doctor and you're doctoring and you're a, a professor on an academic environment. And to do that, we have someone that has spent many years doing those things. Dr. David Orenthlicker. Dr. Orenthlicker is, or Dr. O as his students refer to him is a member of the Nevada Assembly, previously served as a member of the Indiana, Indiana House of Representatives. He was trained at Harvard Law and Harvard School of Medicine, widely recognized for his expertise in health law and constitutional law. Dr. O has testified before Congress, had a scholarship cited by the U.S. Supreme Court, and has served on many national, state, and local commissions. He is the author of the book Matters of Life and Death, Making Moral Theory Work in Medical Ethics and the Law, and his new book, is Two Presidents Are Better Than One, the case for a part, bipartisan executive branch. David, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. It's good to be here,
1: thanks.
2: Well, I just wanted to ask, because I wanted to ask in the last episode, but how do you like to be referred by?
1: Yeah, so when I'm in the classroom or in the legislature, I find going by Dr. O is a useful thing because doctors still, They may not be on the pedestal they once were, but in terms of public respect, um, doctors are quite high up there. And this is especially true in the legislature when we're dealing with health issues. One of the things you find out, and this gets to a distinction between being a professor and a legislator. As a professor, I would never go into the classroom without to teach a topic that I didn't feel I had mastered. But as a legislator, if you took that approach, right, you never get to vote on anything because you have to vote on, Yeah, you know, I know a lot about health policy. I know a lot about law. But when I went into the Indiana legislature, I had to vote on hog farming and coal mining, a lot of other things that I didn't know much about. And so you end up having to rely on other people's judgment. You can't possibly make up your own mind on everything you vote on. I'll give you an example. I was on Ways and Means, and the Department of um, Environmental Management for the state came in with their flowchart chart of how many positions they wanted us to authorize in the budget. And one of the one of the job titles was something like Toxic Waste Dump Inspector. And I don't know, they wanted 12, whatever. And I'm thinking, is 12 the right number? 20, 6? It would take me two or three weeks to figure it out, but I could probably figure out what the right number is. That's one job and one agency. So what you learn quickly is you have to find people whose judgment you trust. So we had a farmer. So if we had farming issues, I'd go to Dale Grub, And you know if there was a coal mining, Russ Stilwell had been a coal miner. And then Wynn Moses had been a mayor and he just generally had good judgment. But what would happen is a lot of things you have to vote on and you just hadn't had a chance to study and you weren't sure how you were going to vote so you'd look at the scoreboard as you cast your ballot your green or red light lights up and i'd wait to see well how's win voting on this or how's dale voting on this and then i cast my ballot and when i when it was a health issue my colleagues would look how's david voting on this one time i was multitasking and pushed the wrong button and and something went the wrong way because I had been multitasking, but everybody followed my lead. Fortunately, we were able to fix it with an amendment later. But but that's a huge difference. That and so it's critical. How whose judgment can you trust? And as a professor, I was pretty in good position to call on academic colleagues at my institution or at in other places. But this is why lobbyists are so influential because they know legislators need guidance and they're all too happy to provide it. And I think one of the unfortunate things is too many legislators look to lobbyists, look to special interests rather than more neutral sources of information.
2: That sounds like a test anxiety nightmare voting on something you don't have enough information about that you wanted to spend, you know, weeks studying. And I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I laughed after I asked that question. It was, I wasn't laughing at you, Dr. Orant-Licker. I was just laughing at how badly I butchered that question. Sorry.
0: No problem. One of my thoughts is, it does it feel like as a doctor, as a, a lawyer, and as a professor, you have... Soma, uh, you you give most of your energy into independent thinking and making decisions based on your evidence and your ideas in your mind, whereas in the political environment, it, there's a little bit of a herd mentality. Now, does that make you more susceptible to social influences and just that, the herd?
1: And you kind of reference it a bit. Yeah, I'm not sure about that so much as... One big difference, so here's where, you know, I've been a legislator, and I'm guessing the experience of being a governor or a mayor is different because, and I'll give you an illustration. I got a call from a mayor in my district when I was in Indiana and he had some issues. He was a Republican and the governor was a Democrat, so he couldn't get through to the Department of Transportation. So he wanted to have a meeting would I set it up? And I said, sure. So I, I got a meeting with the commissioner for the department of transportation and the mayor and the, the state was gonna upgrade the uh, state highway to make it a limited access highway. So it looked like an interstate, even though it would still be a state highway. It was going right through this mayor's city, dividing it in half. So he had some ideas about how make it more aesthetically pleasing. So, I'm there and he's negotiating with the commissioner of the department of transportation saying, if you'll make these changes for us, I know it'll cost you more money. We'll assume the cost of upgrading another state road that, you know, comes through our city. And I'm sitting there listening to him negotiate thinking I could never negotiate like that. Right. Unless I've got, you know, I'm, I was in a house of a hundred. So I had to get 50 other colleagues to agree. And then in the Senate, there would be 26 so i have to get 77 other legislators to agree before i could promise anything and here's this mayor making deals so i think the experience of a mayor or governor would be a lot more like a doctor where you're in control of the situation and the other difference is you know your voter thinks they can tell you what to do. Most patients don't think they can tell a doctor what to do. But the part of being a legislator that felt most like being a doctor was not voting on bills. It was dealing with constituents trying to cut through the red tape. You know, they had an issue with, with Department of Environmental Management or uh, unemployment agency. And you know they have trouble getting through, but, If I call the agency, they'll listen to me. And so working with my constituent to solve their problem was that felt a lot like being a doctor, because then I'm in control, unlike the voting or the legislative part, and it's just me, all I need to do is negotiate with some agency official who, if that person's from my party, now a lot depends, right? If If we're in the same party, they're gonna take my calls a lot more quickly. So that feels more like being a doctor, but being in the legislature, do, yeah, dealing with bills that you support or not support, uh, then it's a different ball game. You're now having to not think just about what you think is right for your voters, but what you can get passed. And sometimes you have to make changes that you know you wouldn't say to a patient. Well. But uh, maybe, what's the analogy with a patient? Maybe their insurance is limited. Maybe they can't afford what you really want them to do. So you think, okay, how do I adjust my treatment plan so it works for their budget or maybe their time constraints? Maybe they don't have the time to do the exercise you want them to do. So maybe that would be more comfortable.
0: Could you compare the styles of communication? When you're a doctor in the you know, hospital treatment environment when you're a lawyer in the legal environment with other lawyers and the judge, an elected representative and a professor, can you compare and contrast your communication style?
1: That's a good question. Um, Because in all those settings, you've got to make sure the person you're speaking to understands what you're trying to you know, persuade them about and figure out how to persuade them in an effective way. As a professor, you have a big advantage because these are students who, you know, I teach at a law school, so they've already gone through college. And so they're kind of primed to learn and understand how I convey information. Whereas, you know, when you're dealing with constituents or patients, they come from all different backgrounds. And if you don't uh, adjust. You know, you got to understand your audience. But one thing that is critical, I think, for both voters and with patients, is the trust phenomenon. So when I would go out and talk to voters, if if I could establish a trusting relationship, it, sometimes it didn't seem to matter what I how I voted. I remember one guy I was campaigning for my reelection. I knocked on his door. He said, "David." You're doing a great job. You don't have to worry about my vote. I thought, great. And then he says, I, I'm a one issue person. And my issue is school vouchers. He and he was a that was he wanted us to adopt school vouchers. Now it turned out I don't support, didn't support school vouchers. And I didn't say to him, you know, I, I'm with you on that. I didn't want to lie. But I also didn't say to him, you know, to be honest with you, I post school lectures. I just listened and tried to do it in a way that was you know, honest. Um, but he was a guy who supported me 100%, even though he, I, I disagree with him on his critical issue. But I, you know, he, I developed a relationship with trust, maybe knocked on his door, I sent out communications, updating what I was doing. And so that was the important thing. He, he trusted me and believed in me. And, and that was that personal relationship. And, and how you see that when I won my first race, I won by like 0.2% Then it went up to 6% and then 12% because every two years I could build relationships with more voters and increase my margin of victory.
3: So you're talking about these things that are, Um, important for engendering trust, like it sounds like transparency and perhaps um, maybe this is me extrapolating, but perhaps occasionally vulnerability as professionals who are often seen as authorities or experts, whether that be doctor, legislator, professor, or lawyer, your many hats. um, We often avoid vulnerability and there's you know with doctors were plagued by the uh superman perfectionist um can't can't care for self problems and you know I, I think for me i was really refreshed learning about the history of fireside chats um and some of the other i don't know the the there's a latin american president pepe Mujica, who had a lot of vulnerability in his discourse um Yet the public seems to generally vote for people who present a really strong man image. And it seems like there's this concept that if you show weakness, you might be kind of pounced on. Um, How do you view all of this? And in what ways have you experimented with vulnerability or is that not something that would work and and foolhardy?
1: That's a good question. And when I think back to my first, uh, job taking care of patients after my, when I left my residency, um, that, you know, I see the patient, take the history and I'd say, give him a gown, change. I run back to my office, pull out my guide to clinical office practice to make sure, you know, read out, figure out what additional things I needed to do, go back, do the exam, finish up, have them change, run back, look at my book, and see, you know, what I should recommend for treatment. And none of, of course, the patient was unaware of this, and that it was very important to me to project this authority, especially being just out of training. So I think that's important, and I think we worry about, we are very careful about that, and as doctors, right, you want them to believe in you. Um, That said... I also think we don't always get it right when we judge what voters want, what patients want, that um, we only know in hindsight what voters wanted, and then we can say in hindsight, oh, that's why this person won, but try to predict in advance and um, it's not clear, we'll get it right. So. And I think people aren't always good at articulating. There's something visceral that let, makes them like one person. And then they articulate it as best they understand it. But I'm pretty confident a lot of times that's not what's really explaining it. But some things I think you're right. I think taller candidates do better. I think younger, taller candidates. I remember when Barack Obama debated John McCain And I think if it had been on radio, it would, the debate reaction would have been very different. But, you know, John McCain was shorter, older. He was limited physically because of his war injuries. I think that had a huge impact on the people watching that debate.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCR and the show Let's Get Psyched. And we're talking to Dr. David Orenthlöker, Dr. O, about the differences in the various hats he's worn, Elected official, currently as doctor, lawyer, and professor, I, I, I this is going to seem like a weird question, but I'm curious: is which job do you feel like you're most able to be your real self?
1: Very good question. Uh, That's a good question. I think between, you know, being a law professor and a doctor, I'm, my dad was a law professor. I have a twin sister who's a law professor. That's just more, you know, the kind of person I am to think about legal problems. So I think, you know, I'm more myself as a law professor than I was taking care of patients as an elected official. You know, you can't say everything on your mind because I remember I was we had this big debate about property taxes and you know you say what you give a response and you know people can take one line out of context and you have to think about every sentence you say how can that looks how might that look standing alone and so you do have to i find my yeah you're definitely more careful about what you say as an elected official in public then in a classroom, I could be much more freer about what I say. But one thing I think people need to understand, you know, when you're thinking about elected officials is they're playing roles, right? People think, oh, what's, what's the true, you know, the true person? Well, you know, they're playing a role. They're running in the particular district, right? And you know, one of the things I remember, National Public Radio did a show on the kind of the evolution of Mitch McConnell, and they, you know, talked about as a mayor of Louisville how he was, you know, much more you know pro union, much more liberal than the Mitch McConnell, who's a Senate minority or majority leader. He's adjusted to fit his party, so he's playing two different roles. His role as mayor of Louisville. Was a different role than his role as senate minority or majority leader and and so that's an important thing for voters to understand that we're at you know you should think of your elected officials and your candidates like they're acting and you know you wouldn't mm. think you know tom hanks is you know who's who's the real tom hanks forrest gump or the you know ship captain who was hijacked or you know the, the kid, kid right well that's
3: the way a lot of people desire. So, so and it sounds like what you're saying is none of those people is the real Tom Hanks. Um, that's, that's, that's a little bit, I don't know if it's disheartening or scary, but sounds very real. Um, I, you yeah, talk about risk aversion. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I would talk to legislators, when you, you know, you get an impression when you listen to them speak, publicly. And then when you have your one-on-one conversation, it's just a very different conversation. And, you know, they, you find out how much of what they say publicly is part of their public role, their public persona. Am I getting you clear, uh, clearly, though, Dr.
0: O, is that um, you, you're proposing that people should make their peace with it, that, okay, this, it's clear, these are just different roles that we serve. So don't expect people to be their authentic, genuine self at every moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking about that, you know, in terms of what does it mean to be authentic? Because you hear voters say that. And I don't know if the analogy is there are some actors who seem more authentic in their role, do a better job in the role they're playing than other actors do. But, you know, that's, I think, when people, when they say the candidate or the elected official is authentic, I think that it's the same kind of thing they're talking about.
0: I have another similar curious question. I hope, I hope you're okay with it. And everyone that's okay with it is which position do you feel you had the most power? I know there's different ways of
3: calculating that, but I leave that to you. That's a great question. I, I'm enjoying your questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, so one contrast is the professor versus the legislator. Cause I, you know, both are important. And so when I'm, when I'm a, a professor, I'm, creating ideas like a bipartisan presidency that I could, and to do that as a professor, you need to block out, you know, a lot of time and immerse yourself and and do nothing else. You, You can't just do it a couple hours here, a couple hours there, but then you need somebody else to propose it. So, you know, and I would advise elected officials and testify, but I saw when I would go in, that unless I had a vote, my influence was limited. So that was an important reason why I serve. So serving, now I can propose ideas that I think are important and try to get them adopted, but then I can't create the ideas. So, you know, both are very important, coming up with the ideas and then trying to implement them. Now, as a doctor, um, you know, there you can you have very immediate impact, make the difference in somebody's life. So, uh, but I also remember times thinking when you would, you know, I had an internal medicine practice, and I remember that was kind of this feeling that a lot of the people who come to you are not there because they really have a medical problem that they need. You know, the as we used to talk about the people had social problems, and and where else, you know, they maybe didn't have a pastor they would go to and they'd end up at the doctor's office. So Often you'd feel like you weren't having a huge impact with a lot of your patients. So I'd say each one has an important way in which you can have a lot of influence and then other ways in which it's limited. I have another question. It's
0: it's going to be, uh, again, It's one these are some of my, like, just my pet thoughts uh, that I kind of entertain is that, you know, we're in an environment where uh, a, 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 a significant uh, portion of folks out there doubt the mainstream media, doubt uh, sci- uh, science, I'll say, or academic institutions, maybe because they're assumed political bent or ideology. And I like how how do we, uh, uh, what what are your proposals or thoughts of how we arrive at truth, and facts? I, I the, it seems like it's kind of broken right now. There's a, there's a this a huge influence. The studies showed uh, things like Facebook, and that leads people down wrong roads and things like that. Do you have any thoughts about how what we can do as a as a nation to 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 get to uh, get arrive at facts and hopefully like truth?
1: That's a hard one because there's so many. Like one critical thing I think is the confirmation bias problem. People have their, you know, their beliefs, and so as they see information on Facebook or the newspaper, Fox News or MSNBC, the things that you know reinforce their beliefs. They jump on and the things that contradict don't and and it's it's discouraging too when I you know had heard people talk about these if you give people factual information sometimes it reinforces their their misbeliefs so it is a, um, a very hard thing and I, I don't know how we solve that um, one of my pet theories is that
0: uh journalists should be trained in rules of evidence like they do in law school and things like that that'll make them have a little bit more critical thinking so that then that when they frame their message they'll have that understanding but do you feel like that's a silly idea you're, you seem like you're again you're in the perfect position to answer this question
1: yeah i think it would be helpful i think journalists are subject to confirmation bias and you know they present you know their you know, they jump on things that you know. The there's a, a new medical announcement that you know is preliminary, and they give it all this attention. So, um, I, I wish I had a good answer to how we can address this. But
3: are people annoyed by your authority, particularly people on opposing sides of an argument from you? If you were to bring up like. Or even just when you're introduced, like it's you're a doctor and there's something involving healthcare. Are people scowling and cynical about your authority or how, how do people react to you kind of having this this wild card on the scene that, you know, kind of uh, belies the lack of knowledge that might be going on around you related
1: to a bill or, or a, a measure? Yeah, in my experience, it really depends on the issue. So if, if you're talking about abortion, you know people have strong moral views on abortion and my being a doctor is not going to change people's minds really. But if it's an issue where people don't have strong ideological predispositions. So sometimes I'll, you know, we'll have a debate and I'll stand up and say I'm going to put my doctor hat on here. So one ex- couple one example was whether we should mandate the chickenpox vaccine for you know kids going to school and i said speaking as a doctor this is why we should do it and and i that i think moved people because you know the anti vaccination movement always you know we've had that for hundreds of years but this was pre covid and it wasn't that strong and so it wasn't driven by ideology in the way COVID vaccines are. So there are times that that putting on my doctor hat really matters and change it, it definitely changes votes. But as I say, other issues like abortion, it, you just don't see it. Do you have
0: thoughts um, on this, the, the current anti-vax issues that are going on right now? And some of the struggle that doctors and nurses are having um uh, 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 with with holding in some of the emotions that they feel toward folks that are that don't get vaccinated and yet um, are cl- uh, filling up the
1: ERs and ICUs. It is incredibly frustrating because you know this gets into a behavioral psychology and economics. you know, we'd like to think people act in their self-interest and getting a vaccination is so clearly from a rational standpoint in people's self-interest, yet they act, you know, their life could be on the line. So in terms of, and it's easy as their doctor being overwhelmed and some patients you feel like are innocent victims and others contributed. And so that you start to resent the ones who are, you know, stressing our healthcare system making it hard to treat other people but i think we get into very dangerous territory when as doctors we start to make moral judgments about our patients that that's you know we're not moral experts as doctors if we start making moral judgments about our patients it could be who gets a kidney transplant or a liver say a liver transplant well this person was an alcoholic, this person, other person accidentally ate poisonous mushrooms. So I should favor the, the poison mushroom person because it was innocent. Um, if you start doing that, you're going to get inconsistency. Some doctors are going to you know, be more s- strict than others. And it shouldn't matter which doctor you have. Uh, And we're not going to, if once, and the other problem getting, another problem with getting into moral judgments, besides this is not our expertise, is that we tend to um, only single out certain uh, behaviors that we are, you know, disfavor. We're not, you know, there's certain, maybe smokers more than drinkers, maybe, you know people who what about the people who don't exercise and get heart attacks right so we're not consistent in terms of which moral vices we target and i think we have to leave that to other systems it's not for the doctors taking care of patients that's not their role their role is our role is to take care of patients and do the best we can to make them healthy and moral judgments can be for the legal system and other systems, but that's it, it, not what doctors are there to do, or they're not trained to do, and that's not
0: what their authority is. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked to uh, Dr. David Orentlicker about differences in communication, thinking ab- among the many hats in different environments he's operating. He's elected official, a professor, a doctor, a lawyer. David, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me.
0: And thank you also to our co-hosts, doctors. Toshi Yamaguchi, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at Get psyched on K U C R gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes and many extended versions of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. All right, what do we I- think?
2: I like that. I, I do have another question.
0: Yeah, sorry, um, I didn't see that you're getting ready to say something.
2: Sorry. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so I was just wondering, like, you know, that chicken pox story got me thinking about I'm just wondering what your opinion is on doctors voicing their political opinion in public. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like the public wants doctors as a whole to be basically bipartisan. Um, they want to rely on our opinion being evidence-based, science-driven, factual. Um, and your chickenpox story really demonstrates the weight of the doctor card, right? Like in quotations, the doctor card. So like with that level of responsibility we carry, um, do you think we need to be conservative about when we kind of dole out our opinion or do you think that maybe like with the climate as it is of how strong the sentiment right now is going towards anti-science that we need to be more vocal. I just, I don't know. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, to the extent people are saying things that are just inaccurate, then I think it's important to correct that. Um, and I tell them, when I speak to medical groups about the legislative process, one thing I say to them is you can be incredibly influential by coming down and testifying. Because, you know, if you speak as a lobbyist, everybody knows you're being paid to take a position. And so you've got to discount what that person says. But a doctor who comes in on their own and says, look, this is my expertise here's important information for you to know, you have a lot of, that'll carry a lot of weight, but you're right. Where's the line between neutral objective advocacy and, you know, sticking out of position. And-
2: like, have you seen, I was just became aware of this, but the association of American physicians and surgeons, have you heard of that group? It's like an alt-right group. Yeah,
1: sounds familiar. But yeah, Rand Paul was in it. Yeah. Sorry. So, but yeah, I mean, when I I worked at the American Medical Association for several years, and it was, there was a real tension there. On one hand, the AMA often acted as a kind of like an academic expert organization, but it also was a trade association. And, you know, when we would work on ethics guidelines, I thought the, you know, we did a lot of very good things, but the hardest things were when doctors' pocketbooks were at stake. It's hard to get the AMA to get doctors to act against their financial self-interest. Not impossible. Mm. We were able to pass an opinion on against, uh, you know, investing in a MRI facility and then sending your patients there, the self-referral problem. Mm. Not taking gifts from drug companies, so we could do sons, but those were the hardest wow. things. That you know, I mean, we we were with the ACLU and reproductive rights organizations on abortion and other maternal fetal issues. There were cases like we'd file friend of the court briefs, and the and the litigation would be brought by a reproductive rights group, and they'd give us part of their oral argument time because you know, the AMA argued in favor of their position, right? Nixon going to China kind of phenomenon. This is a, you know, the AMA conservative doctors and they're supporting this. So,
2: um, so it sounds like- uh, So
1: anyway, so the AMA, getting back to the AMA, you know, the AMA could have a lot of influence by, you know, acting as kind of a, you know, an expert organization. Or another example, we worked on a brief um, for a Supreme Court case. And I went to the oral argument because we worked on it. I was with a law firm representing the AMA at the time. And during the oral argument, Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court at the time. She holds up our brief and says to the other side, what do you think of the AMA's view on this? And I thought, oh my God, that's incredible influence to have Sandra Day O'Connor do that. So, um, so yeah, I think doctors should use their expertise, but, but then if you get an organization where like the Rand Paul group, it gets to be very problematic. And, and, you know, I've seen exaggerations. I've been to rallies, reproductive rights rallies, and seen a pro-choice doctor get up and kind of exaggerate some of the science. And it's like, no, it's not really that. But, you know, but so it's worse on the right, I think, but it happens on both sides. So I don't I feel know if I like answered your that question. Line,
2: yeah, it's just a, it's so it's a, a tough hard line, line to walk. Line. Yeah. It's a tough line to
1: walk. Uh, but if you uh, do it properly, as I say, you can have a lot of influence. There's no doubt about
0: it. I, I uh, thought that the AMA has been one of the biggest uh impediments to passing universal health care but has it also been just doctors wanting to protect their incomes like over the years is that one of the biggest
3: yeah
1: blocks well it's interesting you know, if you go back to medicare right the ama was strongly opposed medicare because they thought it would hurt them turned out it was one of the best things for doctors ever i i remember talking to some doctors you know who were practice in the pre-medicare days and they said you know in those days pre-medicare and medicaid you know you'd often your patients would pay you in chickens or you know <laughs> you'd give a lot of bills <laughs> and now you have all these patients you got reimbursed because dr fear was the government wills limit reimbursement right uh, but turns out, you know, they do very well and a and so much higher percentage of their patients get paid. So doctors, yes, it's about their view is what is this going to do to me? I got to say, one of the things that's kind of surprised me in the Nevada legislature, I don't remember this so much in Indiana, how much when I go, you know, to talk to interest groups, who I think of being on, you know, generally progressive and they'll they'll be very frank. Well, what's in it for me? That's how I'm going to decide this. Is this good for my membership? I, don't, I know it might be good for the public at large, but if it's not good for my membership, we're going to oppose it. And I said whoa. Uh, Straight so open with that. Very much more open than I remember. Maybe it's good that they're transparent, but it surprised me that, <laughs> you know, how transactional these interest groups, even the ones, you know, I expect it when you talk to a chamber of commerce, but when you're talking to groups that you would think would be more, you know, civic minded and they're not as much as you'd like, wow.
0: I always thought, is to have it in the legal arena? I feel like every time I go to Vegas, there's like a million billboards about lawyers <laughs> is, do you feel like there's a legal also a legal like a difference in the legal world between Indiana and Nevada?
1: Hmm. Well, one of the things that struck me and it's changing a little bit, is you know I came from Indianapolis, which is you know a little smaller metropolitan area than las Vegas but but Indiana, Indianapolis traditionally had three big firms that you know drew. Had a national practice and you know hire nationally and they've since gone through a lot of mergers but las vegas just didn't have that when i got here that it's a much smaller legal community and the one of the explanations i heard was you know the big industry in town is the casinos they're big national companies and so they they turn to lawyers in dc or new york or la to provide most of their legal work, not so much locally. So so it's a the legal community, the size of the firms look more like a a Nashville than, than, than or even smaller city than, than I would have predicted. So so that may be why the personal injury lawyers are more noticeable, because they're just a higher percentage than in other cities. Yeah hustle. hustle.
3: Do you have frustrations with uh, the the standard that you were held to as a physician in terms of how much how careful what you have to say is versus what you see when you when you're in the voting sessions or when people are are debating kind of how people are able to say things that are much less disciplined and maybe less mature, and and certainly less based on evidence.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're right. There, the rules of the road are much clearer in medicine. Uh, and in some ways, you're 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 more conscious because the media is tracking everything you say, whereas. When you're trying to patience it's just you and the patient so in some ways you you could have more freedom but you're you know it's you're not this gets back to the winner take all and you know the things people will do another analogy that i've thought about the Houston Astros in baseball cheated to get win a world series the new england patriots they cheated to try to win a Super Bowl and that's because those again are Higher the stakes, you know, look at what all the recruiting violations of college football. So, anytime you have high stakes, winner take all, they're just gonna push boundaries. So, doctors, you know, you're not every doctor, right, can count on a comfortable job, and you, know, you don't have to fight for you know your income. So, I suspect that is a big reason why doctors don't have the pressures to push, push boundaries, like you see in law, politics, or professional, or sports.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, I'm I'm mindful of your time, Dr. O. You've invested so much time with us. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate your interest. Yeah, I can thank help Thank you let so me
2: know. much.
3: You really gave us a window into your world, and, and that was a, a unique and valuable experience. Um,
2: yeah.
3: And I uh, really appreciate it. If mm-hmm. you ever come here, you, <laughs> you have my vote. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you go to a third state and you run for a lot. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or when you run for president. Oh, there you go.
1: Okay.
3: Or just move to Las Vegas a <laughs> doctor shortage
1: here.
3: Yeah, doctor, yeah. uh, doctor Dumania. Are you familiar with him? No. Uh, there's a doctor, great, great doctor who's a, a media doctor. Um, really does great work. His name is uh, Z MD, and he oh, yeah. started a, a clinic or a or a chain of
1: clinics in in um, Nevada. Really. Oh, oh, well, the Joe touch with. It's getting better, but the Joe that they tell you when we move here is, you know, where do you go when you need a doctor? McCarran, now re Airport. But you, know, mm. you have to go to LA or Mayo Clinic or somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Interesting.
0: Well, okay, and then we'll, we'll send you um, kind of a, 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 an email about when it's going to be posted, these episodes are going to be
1: posted and, and things like that. Great. That sounds good. Yeah, our meeting people will be happy to know. I'll be interested too. So thanks.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank hey, you so much. Nice Have a nice evening. rest of the night. You too.
0: Bye-bye. Bye
2: bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye.